Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast exploring the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I'm glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable profession. First of all, I want to give a shout out to many of the encouraging reviews we've gotten on our social media as well as the various podcast platforms. Great to hear. There is appreciation for the caliber of guests we've been able to bring on this podcast. And of course, I'm grateful for the very practical advice and professional development ideas they are all adding to the mix. Also, I'm encouraged to see there is a lot of interest in more reading. Uh, Of course, I know we never have enough time to read as much as we would like, but be assured we'll continue to provide great professional development book recommendations that you can add to your library. Once again, I've got a fantastic conversation to share with you in this episode, and it is with Joanne Beam, who has had a stellar career in the nonprofit field, a decorated fundraiser first at Wake Forest University and then as a consultant and coach for several decades now with dozens of organizations and nonprofit leaders uh, of all shapes and sizes. And I hope you'll listen carefully for advice she offers in three broad categories. Number one, how do you best position yourself to find a job in the nonprofit sector? And, of course, the other side of that coin is those of you hiring. These are characteristics, of course, you may want to look for even more closely. The second category we talk about is what types of professional development can best help you advance to senior leadership, those of you that are moving along the path but still aspire to be an executive director or a chief development officer in the organization of your choice. And finally, we talk about some of the potential surprises and, frankly, pitfalls that face many of the senior leaders, the executive directors that Joanne has worked with, and some advice to help avoid those things and be more successful as a senior leader. Once again, don't forget to check out the show notes on our website. Of course, this is episode number 22, and just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com. And you'll find all the resources, links, and books, as well as more information about Joanne and the great work she's doing in the nonprofit community. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Joanne Beam. Joanne, thank you for joining me on the path. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about this. Well, likewise, uh, your journey is an impressive one through various nonprofit stages. But as I recall, you didn't start on the nonprofit path. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you uh, first arrived on this journey that is nonprofit. Well, it's somewhat unexpected. Um, When I graduated from Wake Forest, um, I became a banker. Like many of us back in the 80s, um, banking was a natural place to go because you could learn about so many different industries. And so that's the the journey I took. Um, I came to Charlotte to work for First Union and then they sent me to Baltimore. I left them, went to work for another bank. And one day, uh, very nicely, I got a phone call from Lake Forest saying, we'd like you to come back and work in the development office. I had known the development office because of um, when I was at Wake Forest, I was student government president had done a lot of work with the development office. It was the 150th anniversary. We inaugurated a new president. 
And so it was one of those sort of dream come true opportunities. I mean, I did not hesitate at the call. Um, I actually took a pay cut and went back to work at Wake Forest. I wow. would um, venture to say I would not recommend anyone take a pay cut necessarily <laughs> right. um, to, 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 to do their dream job, but nonprofit does pay less. And I will say that the doors that that opened up for me in the world that that opened up for me, it was the best decision and it probably, and it set me on my career path um, by doing that. That's fantastic. And the rest so, is sort of history. Well, tell us what you do now. Uh, obviously you and I have connected over the years, but you've turned that early experience, I guess, into opportunity to help many other nonprofit and fundraising organizations since then, right? I have. And, you know, interestingly enough, my, my, my father was an entrepreneur. And so my goal had always been to eventually to have my own business. And I just never knew what that would be or how that would come to be. And so I was at Wake Forest for about seven years and learned all parts of development. And I loved it and had the opportunity then to go work in the consulting world. Um, did that and really enjoyed that. And I thought for the first time, I'm like, okay, I'm using my skills to help other nonprofits to do what's a lot easier for a college and university because they have a natural constituency. Um, most nonprofits don't necessarily have that. And so they have to build it. And I really enjoyed that. Again, had an interesting opportunity to go work in the um, investment world, um, which I did for two years and learned a lot about how you invest nonprofit assets, endowment, scholarships, um, which is very, which was really interesting and helpful. Learned that it was not my thing. Right. And but at the same time, you know, I look back at my career and go, okay, banker understanding finance, that's probably a good thing. Fundraising, got that piece, then understood the investment piece, and then I said, okay, it's time to set up my own shingle, and that's what I finally did. So I've been in the consulting world now since basically 1999, um, which is Fantastic. amazing to think about. Well, and it's it's given you great access to a lot of talented people and great organizations, and, and I know that will lead to uh, advice you can offer, as you and I have discussed. Our our listeners generally fall in three categories, you know, new or aspiring to join the field. Uh, many are mm -hmm. in the field, climbing the ladder, trying to reach senior level leadership. And then, of course, the third category of those in leadership, juggling all the things that uh, the management of a nonprofit organization requires. So would love to touch on those with you, each of those three. But, but first, as you may have known, I ask each guest uh, in the spirit of productivity, how do you stay organized, Joanne? You got lots of people and organizations and clients you're juggling. Uh, do you have any tips or tricks you might offer our listeners? Well, you know, it's funny. I laugh because I look at my office as we're talking and I have piles. <laughs> and so um, I do tend to be a pile person um, to some extent. Um, I actually keep folders for each client that I'm working on and then within the client, various projects. So that way, um, each I used to use notebooks and they became too cumbersome. So I do, I do like the files, but I've actually have been trying to become more um, thoughtful about sustainability and I'm trying to become more electronic in right. my work right. and trying to learn how to save things and files on the computer. But, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like I work at every day. I'm a list person, but I'm learning how to use the computer and do the list on the computer. 
nice. um, so that the reminders come that way. But I'm still one of those people that um, my typing is not what I wish it was. So I'd still take handwritten notes. And I wish that I was one that was better and could take the notes directly um, on my laptop. And it's something that I, um, I aspire to do because I actually think that would help me be a lot more organized. That's a great point. I think like many of us, the conversion of analog to digital is something we dream of, but it's not always easy to do, right? No, and I guess, you know, we didn't have typing classes when I it was in high school, and, and I wish that's a class that I had been able to take. Um, I do think it would have been um, really helpful. Um, and so, you know, once I take so lucky to watch my child because I mean, he, he can just go at it, you know, so quickly and type something up. And I'm like, gosh, a, an art that I don't have that I probably need to go back and, and gain. Well, never too late. And I applaud the fact you're mm-hmm. kind of thinking about that. I'm, I'm just convinced and, and we'll talk about in the nonprofit sector, like any profession, the volume of content you have to deal with is significant. And in often in nonprofit, you don't have necessarily the administrative support. So you have to kind of be self-organized. And I guess maybe that's something we can talk about, but maybe going back to the early days of your nonprofit, I guess the transition from banking to nonprofit, uh, was there anything that surprised you in that early stage? And again, this can speak to our listeners who are pondering a similar jump or start. Mm -hmm. I wonder yeah. how you advise people in, in a similar situation to you back, back then? Um, well, the good parts of, of that were that, um, you know, going from a um, banker to in the nonprofit sector, the biggest piece of it was relationships and building relationships. And so, you know, I was a good relationship builder and a good connector. And that's what I gained out of you know, use in the banking world in addition to the financial, you know, skills and things that I had learned. But taking that into the nonprofit sector was huge. I mean, that was, a, you know, that was really what started me off to be um, successful. And in those early years, um, some of the skills from banking actually helped me perform really well. And I brought some nice changes to the development office from the business world, right. um, which was really really helpful. Now, I mean, most um, the college and university development offices have really become much more sophisticated than when I first started there. Um, but I do feel like there was a, that part was, um, was significant. The other thing that I would say is um, I think getting experience outside of the nonprofit sector makes you stronger in the nonprofit sector. Because what I would say is I had a better understanding early on that about the world beyond the development office. Right. And I think that's really important to understand the world your volunteers are in or to understand the world that your donors are in. Now, no, I, I you know, I was not in the world of a, you know, multi-million dollar donor, but, um, but understanding the world beyond those doors is really helpful. And I think one of the things that makes really strong development officers is those that can put themselves in the shoes of their donor and really try to understand the donor, the psychology of the donor a little bit. And I feel like that was, that's something that um, more people probably need to think about that's great in their point. process. So in other words, while there are advantages perhaps to growing up in the nonprofit field, you are very open to, uh, I guess, candidates 
that have are transferring from for-profit. Yeah, very much so. But I would say if you're transferring from for-profit today, I think it's really important to have had some significant volunteer work um, where you've been on a board, where you've served on a development committee, maybe where you've even chaired a board or chaired a committee for a nonprofit, um, but that you've gotten to be really engaged um, in the nonprofit sector in a way that you have a better understanding of how it works because a nonprofit is not a business and it doesn't right. run like a business. And I think too many people think that it should. And I think there, there are some great things nonprofits can take from the business sector, but the most important thing is they're, they don't make money. They're not intended to be, I mean, yes, you need to think about positive cash flow, and yes, you need to think about your revenue stream, but you don't necessarily need to run it exactly like a business. Um, it's not intended to be like that. And so I think having, you want to make that transition, which I think there's a lot of great skills and a lot of great things you can bring to that. Um, I do think understand, trying to have a deeper understanding of how a nonprofit works is really helpful. That's well put. And you certainly articulate the balance because uh, you and I both have seen folks from for-profit who do perhaps well-intentioned think they can rescue a nonprofit because of the business <laughs> practice I can bring, right? And you need to understand both sides. Oh, yes. Well, you, you that's helping... exactly right. And I think that's really important. Well, and sorry to interrupt you. I was just thinking that you are, of course, helping now and have helped many organizations hire uh, new development professionals, mm -hmm. new nonprofit professionals. What are you looking for? Are there certain characteristics? You've, of course, mentioned some, but I wonder as you think about organizations hiring people in the nonprofit sector, what are they looking for? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if, well, I'm going to answer this in two different pieces. The first thing, I recently was on the search committee and helped um, manage a search for a, a nonprofit where I am a volunteer. And we actually did hire someone who was not um, from the nonprofit sector for this executive director role, but, that's, but the individual had gone through a nonprofit course. Um, she'd gotten a nonprofit certificate and had spent a significant amount of time um, also building up some skill sets that I would say beyond what was just what her, her job had been. And so her leadership skills had really been developed in a significant way. And that really attracted us to her. And so far, she's been there four months and is doing a great job. She's brought some great analytical skills to the position, as well as the relationship skills. So that's a case where I, we've helped take someone from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world. And so far, I see great promise. But normally, if I'm look, helping someone look for a development person, I want to see someone that has had some experience in relationship um, building. Whether If they were a right. banker and they were you know, in that world, I want to see how do they manage that? How do they work in those relationships? If they've been in the development world, tell me about your success. Tell me about a failure. Tell me how you've managed what you've done. You know, how have you grown um, in that role? How have you grown... Um, your fundraising for the where you've been, or if you haven't been in a fundraising role but you want to move into one, but you've you know been in another part of a nonprofit, what have you done to gain knowledge, or what have you done to help in the nonprofit that help the nonprofit you're currently with um, in the fundraising? Because everybody important. in a nonprofit should help in fundraising and can help in fundraising. But if you think that that may be a, a path that you'd like to go on, but you may be on the program side, 
what are you doing to help in the um, fundraising side? Um, I do think people can make that jump. And listen, today we need more development people than we have because there are more great jobs open than there are people to fill them. And so I do think there's an opportunity for um, those that have an interest to move into that particular field. But I think the key thing is show some ability to really work in that world. I'm working on one right now where we've had some applications from people that seem to have an interest, but they have not tried to practice, as I would say, um, in the world of fundraising. And they have not tried any of that. While they think that the skills they have from what they've been doing can translate, I haven't, I don't see it. Um, And I think that's the other piece of it. If you're going to apply for a development job, but don't have any development experience, make some connection, explain why what you currently do would allow you to be able to do that. Show an understanding of the development position because oftentimes they don't connect. That's great advice. And you're, you, you may well have transferable skills, but you need to be able to articulate how your skills and experience translate as you describe. And, and I love your point about, I guess what I would describe as, you know, a, a curiosity to, a lifelong learning ambition. Mm-hmm. You want to hire somebody that it even understands what they don't know, but can demonstrate a plan to, to get better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When you talk about the volume, the volume of things that you can read today or, or um, podcasts or things along those lines, anything like that that you can do, there's so many that you can take advantage of. The content's and there. I think yep. content is there. People just need to take advantage of it. And the other thing is, is that there are people that would be willing to sit down and have conversations with you. If you had you know, three strong questions that you went and asked, good development people and um, or good executive directors and to really understand what they do and how they do it, you'd gain an incredible amount of information that would help you develop your own path. And, um, which would and be- your interview, right? That'd be fantastic. Mm-hmm. You'd have more content for an interview as well. Oh, absolutely. But Joanne, I, I've seen you in action, a fantastic presentation you do um, we'll, you'll know where I'm going with this question. If I'm new to a community uh-huh. and, and whether I have some experience or new into nonprofit as well, uh, do you have advice for someone who's getting settled in a community that wants to market themselves as a candidate for nonprofit work? What are some ideas or suggestions you might offer them? Well, I think the, 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 what you're, where you're going is, is that I, I have a presentation about the history of Charlotte um, history of philanthropy in Charlotte that I like to, to do. And the reason I do it is because I think it's really important to know your community. So if you were moving to Charlotte um, completely, uh, you know, don't know this community, new to the community, um, there are resources out there to begin to help you. But that to me would be one of the first and very most important things that you do is to build your knowledge base. Um, so, you know, where, where's the community foundation and, and have you taken advantage of of the resources that the community foundation shows. Um, is there a business journal? Can you go back through some philanthropy um, within the, the newspaper? There was a time in Charlotte where the newspaper did have a big philanthropy section. It's not, a, it's not so much anymore, but you could get a nice history by doing some of that. Um, the business journal does a pretty good job. Some of the magazines do that. And then I would say, you know, go find out who are the pillar organizations in a community? Um, you know, who are involved in those organizations, you know, find them, interview them, 
um, really begin to understand the community and, and the history in that community. While a lot of the historical players may, may or may not still be around, um, learning from once the community came from to where they are today will help you tremendously in, um, in understanding why certain things are done. That Every community has its nuances and you have to figure that out. I find that even when I'm working with a consulting client, if I'm outside of, of Charlotte working in, in a community, I really try and understand that community, who they are, who the players are. Every, every consulting piece that I work on, even if it's not a fundraising oriented, I will say, who are the 10 people that I need to know? Right. Who do I need to interview? Who do I need to talk to? Because I wanna have a sense of that. And I think that's important. Thanks, fantastic. And of course, I've seen it and you explain very well in every community. I'm sure has similar eras as does Charlotte. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our grandparents' generation, so to speak, the, the kind of philosophy behind their philanthropy and how some of that generation still obviously influences funding now. Um, but then as you move through uh, eras of, of corporate philanthropy, of uh, community funds, uh, arts funds, United mm-hmm. Ways, and their rise and, and sometimes decline, uh, you also explain, of course, the economic downturn of 2008, 2009. That has affected every community in the United States, clearly. Um, but you're right. Mm-hmm. You could put yourself through your own uh, education program in your new community, kind of look at those mm-hmm. eras and talk to the right people to learn more. It's absolutely critical. I think um, I talk when I do that um, class about how um, I was doing a board retreat and I love to do an exercise with boards where um, they always want their elevator speech. And you know, I don't believe there is a such thing as an elevator speech because it's a conversation, it's not a speech. Right. But I get their point. You know, they want the language that they can use to talk about the nonprofit that they're on the board of. And so I do an exercise. I put them into small groups and I say, you know, I pick a philanthropist and I say, okay, so you just got on the elevator in the Bank of America building and you've got 45 floors to have a conversation with this philanthropist, what would you say? And an aha moment came when I did this recently and I, I, I um, gave a philanthropist name and the board member raised his hand and said, I wouldn't recognize that person if they got on the elevator. Yeah, that's so good. Stunned. Right. I was so stunned because um, it's someone who was way in the news and who has done a tremendous amount for this community. And I was like, really? And so it made me realize that um, people really do need to have an understanding of this community and who the historic players were. And, and as you mentioned, the different trends that have happened here and the impact of certain um, events in, in history um, and in the economy that have had impacted this. And so from that experience, I built the, this presentation on the history of Charlotte philanthropy. And I continued to tweak it and add to it and change it because um, I do take it into the current day and the philanthropists of today continue to grow. And that's a challenge too, is to, be, is to understand what is philanthropy today? What does it look like? Who's, who are the players? There's significant changes because there's a lot more of what I would call um, group philanthropy, like a women's impact fund or a social venture partners, um, physicians impact fund which has changed the landscape in a different sort of way, in a very positive way, and has grown philanthropists, but all of which you've got to know and understand. 
That's so well put. And I'm, of course, we'll link in the show notes to you and your firm, Joanne, because I think it's brilliant. I've used the concept and what I guess for lack of a better term, it's almost like flashcards. And I think any nonprofit in any community could help its board do as you just described, literally Mm -hmm. put pictures of people on the screen and see who the board knows and doesn't know and help kind of raise their philanthropy IQ. Yeah, well, it's fun because you and I recently did the Institute for Philanthropic Leadership first leadership gift school session, and we did this. And I think in when I did the flashcards of the historical figures, I think maybe people got about three, and we had them in pairs. Three out of 20, right? Three out of 20 Yeah, three out of 25 or something. And then in the new philanthropy group, um, I would have expected them to have gotten out of 25 you know, at least half. And I think the the biggest number was like nine. Right. And so I was a little surprised too that here we, so what a great thing that they're in this program, they're getting this opportunity and every single one of them said, oh my gosh, can I have those flashcards? I want to go back and review them myself and start to learn them. But in addition to that, I want to share those with my board. And um, so that's a nice you know, benefit of that, of the leadership gift school. Well put. And and I just think anyone in any community could ask themselves and self-quiz if, in essence, who are the top individuals, corporations, and foundations that, you know, contribute philanthropically in your in your community. And you should know them and you can find them out. Mm-hmm. And you've created, of course, a, a system that I think is fantastic for someone to follow. Um, well, let me jump into what I would call mid-career, Joanne, that you and I see a lot of talented professionals. They get in, they do well, whether it be fundraising or some other role on their nonprofit, but they're trying to move up, you know, move up the ladder. Um, what are some of the challenges you see in that kind of dynamic and how do you help advise someone who maybe is trying to be an executive director now or be more senior in their development role? Are there kind of advice that you would offer someone like that? Yes, I think there's always some interesting parts. Um, I think, um, first of all, take on new challenges where you are. Um, begin to try and um, fill out, you know, where, where are my strengths and where can I grow where I am currently? Um, the thing that I think we all have to take a, a realistic view of is the landscape of the institution where you are. Um, I had that happen to me in that um, I got to a point where it was like, okay, I've been here at Wake Forest seven years in the development office. What's my trajectory look like? And the bottom line for me was when I looked at the people that were at the level above me, they weren't going anywhere. Yep. And, um, and I, if I wanted to advance, the realization for me was I was going to have to leave. Um, and the interesting thing is um, a lot of the people that were above me then, and, at, and we're talking 1996, they're still there. So I was pretty right <laughs> in my thought process. You'd still um, be in the same spot and, too, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd be well, stuck. In, maybe, in maybe not, but, but they, they've grown so much. So I probably could have grown too, but right. I think that's the thing to evaluate is how much are you going to, is the organization going to grow? And can I continue to grow? And is my position going to continue to grow? Or do I need to leave in order to gain that? Um, and I think that's a true evaluation. I would say you need to sit down first on a piece of paper and say, all right, what am I looking for? What do I want to do? What do I want to be? What, what does this position I want look like? And then I would say is how much of that can you get where you currently are right. um, through your world? And then at some point saying, okay, if I do that for the next year or two, then 
what, where do I need to go? What do I need to do? And I think you have to kind of be, you have to be realization today is that you can look out for yourself and you have to have a plan and, um, and kind and work at it. It doesn't naturally, um, it doesn't, doesn't happen. It doesn't, doesn't show up that way. Um, I think that's really important. That's well put. And I I agree. And I, I often say to people, yeah, don't wait for your organization to kind of do your professional development planning for you because they're not. No offense to Mm-mm. many of our nonprofit uh, organizational friends, but they're often understaffed and under-resourced. So you need to take care of yourself. And I, I love that analysis you describe. What am I seeking in my professional career? And does that opportunity exist on the, the path I'm in, you know, within an organization right now? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let me jump it, to it's then, important. you know, as you've evaluated and perhaps found that path and, and now achieved a senior level position, executive director, uh, what are you seeing in that space? Joanne? And what are the, the struggles or challenges of the nonprofit executive director? Uh, fundraising remains obviously very important to them, but are there certain things you are seeing and advice you are offering? Um, I think fundraising obviously is a huge one. The other one is always working with your board and recruiting um, a strong board. I think that is probably the question as much as the fundraising question that I get the most. And oftentimes I find my work with an executive director is an executive director and their board and helping that board to grow in their role and to be more effective in their role as a board. Um, and I think that's a challenge. Um, I think people come to being on a board for lots of different reasons. Right. And so you have to sometimes meet your board where they are. Um, and then you also have to realize that there are others that really want to grow from that experience and you've got to work with them. A board is a, is a living, growing organization. And I think that most nonprofits expect board members to show up and know on day one what to do. And you can't make that assumption. You as a, you as an, as a executive director and your team need to help educate them and help them grow into their role. And I think if you think about it that way, then you will have a more effective board and you have a more effective relationship with your board. But if you just assume that they know their job the day they walk in the door, then you made a mistake because um, even if they've been on a board in another organization, every organization is different. So the way you do things and, and what your, what your values are and, you know, what your mission is, is so different that they may not know how to translate what their experience has been to your organization. So it's up to you to help them. So I, it's there. And I think a lot of, um, there are executive directors that will basically say, you know what, they're a nuisance. I don't, I don't want to have to, but they're not in a public organization, which a charity, nonprofit charities and public organization, you have to have an effective board and they're your check and balance. Start to use them. They're a wealth of, they have, a, they have huge brains and huge experiences. And I think when an executive director finally says, Oh, I have this wealth of intelligence. How do I use it? And right. begin to figure it out that way. Then it's really powerful. Um, I encourage executive directors to meet with their board members individually, one-on-one, at least twice a year, and go into the meeting with three questions that you want to ask that person that you, to try and understand more about their talent that they can help you with and help bring to your board. That's a fantastic exercise. And does it start often with inadequate job descriptions or 
orientations or lack thereof? Where do you think this challenge, which I agree, often falls between the executive director and their board? I think it's a, I think you're right. I think there's a combination. I think oftentimes the expectations aren't set on the front end and whether that's a poor job description. And I think the job description needs to say, here's what we expect of you, but here's what we're going to do for you. It needs to kind of be a two-way street and oftentimes right. they're not. Um, and I do think board orientations are critical. Um, I think the organizations that um, basically have the nominating committee meet um, in November to basically elect board members in December is a disaster. You've got to start earlier in the process and begin to almost think about boards as a move management major gift effort. Nice. And so what you should be having is a list of potential board members and what are we doing to cultivate them as potential board members and how are we going to bring them along so that in a way, if you do it the right way, that over a two-year period, you've been working with them and engaging them in different ways that hopefully by the time you invite them to come on the board, you have a robust orientation program, but they already know so much about the organization that that's really actually an easy step. Now, I know that's hard and it's not something that's easy to do, but if you have a strong governance committee of your board or committee on trustees or whatever you want to call it, that would be their charge. And I think it's, show is managing them and managing that process so that that's where you can grow to is makes your board that much more powerful if you can do that that's well put and as you said nominating needs to be a year-round process and not mm -hmm. a uh-oh it's it's uh the terms are up next month and we got to scramble <laughs> and find somebody not exactly a good formula for success no and and the realization too is that um, someone may say, even when you ask them, well, not today. And then you need to be thinking, okay, how many more, you know, do I have a cadre of other people or do I let that seat go empty for a year until that person can join the board? I mean, you need to create some flexibility in your process too, because even when you ask someone to, to join the board, even if you've been cultivating them, they still may say it's not, doesn't work for right now. Right, right. Well, Joanne, again, lots of great advice in all three of our kind of phases of nonprofit leadership. I wonder, are there other resources you have turned to, clearly as a lifelong learner that you are, have you found any particular uh, areas of information that uh, remain helpful to you as you kind of continue to improve yourself? Um, I have lots of blogs that I um subscribe to and I put them all in a reading file. This is part of my organization. And then on the weekends, I try and pull out and read um, a number of those, but there are lots of good ones out there um, from, um, gosh, you know, Simone Joyo has one, Tom Ahern has one, um, Penelope Burke has some great stuff. Her new book, by the way, I have been working my way through it. She spoke here in Charlotte back right. in August at the AFP conference and she was fantastic. And she has recently updated her, her book about donor centric fundraising. And I have found that to be really helpful. I'm a big reader of Jerry Tannis's books. I mean, he passed away a couple years ago and I find his book short, easy to read. Sometimes I'll go back. There are certain chapters in his books that I have, you know, dog eared and I will right. go back to those because I particularly like them. He has one book that is my favorite and it's called the power question. And he asks, um, 
people certain you know certain high prof people interesting questions and it's why i have become um more engaged in figuring out the questions i did some training years ago um, at the technology of participation and it's all about the what question and so his questions are fantastic and so i like to always make sure that when i'm going to meet with someone or i'm somewhere that i have my three what questions um, because it's all about learning more about that person and using your two ears and listening to me. And that's where you gain the most knowledge. That's fantastic. And you're right. I think a lot of new fundraisers uh, are too focused on speaking with their one mouth instead of listening mm -hmm. with their two ears. And that's, uh, in fact, where the fundraising success is going to come from if you pay attention, right? And um, mm -hmm. it, it, it truly is true. Well, and I, I like your point, and, and I know you have used resources like Jerry Panis to, um, that's a great giveaway to your board, right, in terms of encouraging students of philanthropy. I believe you've used that, right, as a tool to help mm -hmm. encourage a board to better understand. Yeah, I often will um, pick out um, one of his books, depending on what we're working on with the board, and suggest that they give um, one of the books to the board. Um, if not that, then, you know, one of his articles or a blog or something, um, I'm a big, I, I do think that really does help because I'm, um, you know, you're, you're right. You would hope the board are lifelong learners and they would like to learn more and so help them with that. And so give them the opportunity to read and learn and understand. Um, so I, I do think that is, is really helpful. So you reading and keeping yourself current you can then share that with others and say, here's something that I've read that you might like to read or to give it to the board. Or even if you're a director of development and you've read something interesting about the executive director of fundraising or whatever, give it to them. Right. Um, it's a right. great resource. It shows that you're trying to be that lifelong learner and you can share that um, knowledge with others. Well, Joanne, that's fantastic. I've got, it, it looks like a half dozen resources that I can link to in this episode's show notes. Um, you've already put I'll several you, good books. I'll give you Yeah, you have one you would lift uh, up as your, quote, single book recommendation? Well, well, no, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, there was one, that, one group of authors, and they have some new things out, and that is um, Adrian Sargent and his wife, Jen Chang. Um, they have a textbook on fundraising that I think is very effective. Um, they have gone together with Tom Ahern and have a new philanthropy organization out of England. And I have subscribed to their blog and I find it really interesting. And I'm contemplating right now, Jen Chang is offering a certificate in the psychology of philanthropy. Interesting. And I, it's on my list and I'm evaluating it and I'm seriously thinking um, about doing it because I think it could be really interesting. So I lift that up. It's a little expensive, and um, which is part of why I'm in still kind of <laughs> still trying debating. to decide. <laughs> right, yeah, right. but it, I think it could be very powerful because um, I've often said that in this world, um, you know, you'd almost be better off having a psychology degree than a business degree. <laughs> That's that is fascinating. Well, and um, I will put that as well as a link for many of our listeners mm -hmm. pondering different. Uh, paths of professional development. That sounds like one that would be fascinating to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm if, seriously thinking about it. 
All right. So if you have one book, uh, I'll link to all of them, but I feature in each episode's article, you get one book cover. So which of your books or is there one unnamed so far that you would lift up as your one recommendation? Well, you know, I think that today, because I'm sort of in this mode, I think I would do power questions, build relationships, win new business and influence others. And that is, um, uh, the, um, the Jerry Panis book. Fantastic. And, um, I think that's where I would, um, I would start. That that to me is a foundational text, isn't it? That every Mm -hmm. fundraiser, if not every nonprofit professional should gain experience. And that's a a great recommendation. Joanne, you've given great recommendations advice throughout our conversation. Uh, Where can folks go to learn more about you or is I'll certainly put your website or any other connections, anything else you'd like to uh, help people connect to you? Well, right now, the only place you can find me is on LinkedIn. The website is under construction. And so, (laughs) um, yeah, well, we've been, I've been using the Beam Strategic Consulting as my um, business um, name, but that may, we may tweak that a little bit. And so um, that's why I said the website's under construction should be around in the next couple months. But in the meantime, LinkedIn would be the best place to, to connect to me. You got it. I'll include that in the show notes. And when your website goes live, let us know because we can go back and then add that to this episode so that people will be able to find you down the road. Okay, great. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to do this. I have really enjoyed this and I hope it's been helpful. It's been fantastic and very helpful. And thank you, Joanne, for being with me on the path. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Joanne as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas that can shape your professional development strategy no matter where you are on the path. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find more about some of Joanne's great advice and the list of, quite honestly, seminal book recommendations that you ought to consider for your personal library. As always, please share this episode with somebody else on the path. And by subscribing, you'll be sure not to miss any of our weekly episodes, as well as some of the bonus features we've got lined up at least once every month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. And we'll keep bringing you content that can help you do even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on the path.